1: Welcome everyone to episode 15 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello,
2: good. Um, It's not a... Accomplishment, but I'm excited that we're here two weeks in a row. We've done
1: it. Yeah. Two weeks in a row.
2: Nothing went wrong. I didn't want to say anything to you today because I was a bit <laughs> nervous, but we did it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well actually last week, right before we were about to record, I, I remember telling you I ate something and I was like, Oh, I can fit. and that's just like it's no risk Some Wednesdays. Dicey fish, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No risk Wednesdays moving forward.
2: <laughs> it's a good move.
1: Yeah. Uh, we have got a very exciting case today. Well, I say exciting, it's actually a very sad case and one that uh, that's hit home quite a lot in researching it. It's an infamous case. Before we get into all of that, we are lucky enough to have some more uh, Patreon supporters this week, Chloe.
2: Yes, welcome and thank you to Kesha Devontier, Marilee Robinson, Michelle Gray, John E. Clendenin and Lisa Perry.
1: Thank you very much for your support, everyone. Much appreciated. Leading on from our coverage of Derek Percy last week, today we're discussing one of the many unsolved cases he's a suspect for. But he's not the only suspect in this case today. The disappearance of the Beaumont children is one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in Australian history, with a long list of detailed sightings, public outcries, media storms, persons of interest, all wrapped in a blanket of sympathy for the children's parents. And it's the undercurrent of sorrow pertaining to their story that really tugs at the heartstrings as you delve into this case, that enduring loss and lack of closure they have to this day, some 50 years after that fateful Australia Day in 1966. Every minute of every day, a child goes missing or is abducted. Generally speaking, there are three types of child kidnapping, three categories that an abduction falls into. One, family kidnapping, a parent or relative taking the child from their current environment or living situation. Two, an acquaintance kidnapping, someone known to the child or their family abducts the child for various purposes, which could be financial. ...revenge, sexual or otherwise. And three is stranger abduction... ...by far the least common and by far the scariest. Statistically, children abducted by strangers are often subjected to more criminal acts. They're often abducted close to home... ...or at least first contact is established close to home. They are often taken from the streets, lured into vehicles. Only one in every 10,000 children reported missing isn't found alive... However, 20% of stranger abducted children will be killed, and approximately 75% of them are usually killed within the first three hours of their abduction. Now these are all facts that we know now in 2019. And even now it’s reasonable to ask: “ what would you do if this happened to someone in your family, to your kids? You had no clues, no enemies, no traces. Now imagine it was 1966 a much simpler and innocent time, without the level of awareness and education we have on these matters now, without these statistics and CCTV and social media. Imagine three of your kids went missing, disappeared from a crowded beach, and you had no idea who'd taken them or why. That was the position Jim and Nancy Beaumont found themselves in January 1966, and that's the position they're still in to this day. January 25th 1966, Grant Beaumont Senior, commonly known as Jim, so we'll refer to him as that as we go throughout this tale, said goodbye to his three kids as they played on Glenelg Beach. Jim had to leave, begrudgingly, to head to work. He was a travelling linen salesman and had an appointment booked in Snowtown, an infamous name in Australian true crime circles now, but it wasn't back then.
2: Snowtown was about 150 kilometres north of Adelaide where the Beaumont family lived. They lived in Somerton Park, not too far from Glenalg Beach. Jim had been off work for a few weeks over the summer break and he'd enjoyed much of his time at the beach with his kids. They all loved it there. Nancy, Jim's wife, wasn't as keen on the beach as the rest of the family, so Jim had spent a lot of time with the little ones there over summer.
1: Jim worked some pretty long, tiring hours. He was a salesman nowadays, but previously he'd driven taxis, so some long shifts behind the wheel around Adelaide when he was doing that. Jim loved his kids dearly, he kept letters the kids had written him and photos of them with him when he travelled, and they adored their father too. They missed him when he was away for work. Jane was Nancy and Jim's firstborn. she was nine at this time. Jane was always described as a motherly type, very intelligent, reserved, with aspirations of becoming a writer. Anna, age 7, was a stark contrast to her older sister. She was boisterous, extroverted, creative, loved to sing and dance and dress up, and Grant Jr., who was 4, was absolutely obsessed with his dad. Little Grant would follow Jim around like his shadow, it was said, giving his old man a helping hand with the car maintenance and chores around the house, so Jim had to head off to work, leaving his three beloved little ones behind on the beach they'd catch the bus home later on, as they'd regularly done over that hot Adelaide summer.
2: Go on, Daddy. Don't worry, Daddy, Grant said to his father, encouraging Jim to head off to work and they'd be fine. Jim left, a happy vision in his mind of the youngsters playing together on the beach. Unbeknownst to him, this would be the last time Jim Beaumont would ever see his three children again.
1: Nancy Ellis met Jim Beaumont in October of 1955, while dining out with her uncle and aunt at the Victoria Hotel in Hindley Street, Adelaide. Jim sauntered into the hotel during their meal with a friend of his, high off backing a number of winners at the races that day. Nancy, a gorgeous, olive-skinned, brown-eyed beauty, caught Jim's eye immediately, and with a gentle prod from his friend, he approached Nancy and introduced himself. They hit it off and things progressed to a formal date from there, And it'd only be a short six weeks until Jim asked Nancy to marry him.
2: The pair married on December 3rd, 1955, and a short ten months later, Jane was born on September 10th, 1956. Anna would follow on November 1st, 1958, and then Grant on July 12th, 1961. Jim had been in the army when he was younger. He'd worked hard as a taxi driver in the years after, owning a few cabs, I understand, And in more recent times, he applied his hands at the travelling salesman role we mentioned before. Nancy had an office job working for the City Meat Company.
1: So the Beaumonts had really worked hard to set themselves up. They had a beautiful place in the beachside Adelaide suburb of Summerton Park, and their lives were very much based around the kids and their lifestyle. They had a caravan, which Jim used while travelling, but they'd go on family trips with this as well. On January the 26th, 1966, it was Australia Day, our national holiday. This day sparked celebration and patriotism in the Australian people, similar to that of Independence Day in the US. Australia Day was a celebrated day by and large and a hot one in Adelaide. Temperatures were set to soar over 38 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Imperial Barlands, The three Beaumont kids awoke early and were keen to hit the beach again for a day of fun and games, but with their dad Jim away for work, they had to convince their less beach inclined mum, Nancy, to let them go.
2: As Nancy dozed in her bed, the kids burst in and began nagging her to take them to the Glenelg foreshore for the morning. After some negotiation, Nancy agreed to let the youngsters go to the beach unescorted if they did their chores before leaving. This bargain was easily struck with the youngsters and the trio proceeded to hurry to their bedrooms and change from their pyjamas to their beach attire, leaving Nancy to wake and probably have a strong cup of coffee.
1: The kids had their breakfast, champing at the bit to get going, and Nancy gave them strict instructions to be back home by midday. Now, letting the kids go to the beach unescorted is something most people would hear and think, oh my God, you can't do that. Well, not nowadays, and it's because of cases like this. Back in 1966, this was not an uncommon occurrence for kids to be raised and instilled with a sense of independence like this. I mean, I go back to my childhood... Riding bikes and fishing and different things at age 8 or 9, sometimes going the entire day without seeing my mum and that was in the 90s. So it's important to factor the times and understand the reason we think like this in these times, sadly, is because of cases like this. And besides, Grant and Anna had Jane with them and as we said, Jane was 9 going on 18, a shy girl who knew not to talk to strangers, who was very intelligent and was at the top of her class.
2: Jane had some change for food during the day, maybe 75 cents worth, at the time enough to get them some pastries and pay for their bus fare. So the trio headed off, with their mother Nancy giving them the look after each other and stay out of lonely places, don't talk to strangers talk. This was around 8.35am that Nancy watched her delightful three kids walk down the road, holding hands, turning back to smile and wave at her, And this was the last time Nancy would see her beloved three kids ever again.
1: She went inside without another thought, did some housework and visited a friend in the later morning before getting on her push bike as it closed in on midday and riding down to the nearby bus stop to meet the kids upon their return from the beach. But only an elderly woman alighted from the bus, so Nancy went back home and had some lunch thinking the kids would likely be on the next bus. A friend popped in in the interim and kept her occupied, but her mind never strayed from when the kids should be home next. 2pm was the next bus from Glenelg to Somerton Park.
2: A little after 2 when the kids hadn't returned, Nancy became noticeably worried. Her friend offered to drive her to the beach to pick up the children, but Nancy worried she might miss their arrival at home, so she best wait for the 3pm bus instead. Just before 3pm, Jim arrived home to an understandably shaken and worried Nancy, Jim tried to calm her, saying there was nothing wrong. They were more than likely preoccupied or carried away with an activity. But inside, Jim's mind was probably racing with worry too.
1: And that's the dad's job, right? Calm on the outside, but panic-stricken on the inside. Jim unhitched his caravan and drove straight down to Glenelg Beach. He cruised the area in the soaring temperatures. People flocked the beach and Collie Reserve area, the area where Jim had left his kids the day before. There was no sign of Jane, Anna or Grant. Jim returned home, thinking the kids might have arrived in the meantime, but it was only an increasingly agitated Nancy back at home. The pair returned to the beach shortly after, and after a couple of hours of searching, realised they had to go to the police and report the children missing. And just stopping to think about what Jim and Nancy must have been feeling at this point, probably numb I reckon, it'd be almost emotional shutdown, The worry and dread that something might have happened to the kids would be overwhelming.
2: They reported the children missing to the police and the police took descriptions of what the kids looked like and what they were wearing. The police attended the Beaumont house first, thinking the kids might have been hiding within the premises someplace, maybe scared they disobeyed their mum and would get in trouble for coming home late. But there was no sign of them. Jim joined the police throughout the night as they searched high and low for the missing children.
1: Nancy grew rapidly paralyzed with fear and grief, accompanied by a friend overnight, waiting by the phone for a call with good news. Jim didn't sleep all night, coming home at 4:30 a.m. with the police, then getting into his own car and continuing to search, intent on finding the kids. The initial thoughts were that someone had taken them, because the beach had been so crowded and there were 3 of them drowning seemed like a slim possibility. But also an abduction of three kids was unheard of. If some sycophant was going to snatch a child for their own deviant pleasure, it was generally a singular child. So they were also considering the possibility of abduction by a couple of people who maybe wanted to raise the kids as their own or something like that, and also the possibility that one of the kids had an accident or was maybe stuck someplace and the others wouldn't leave them. By 7am the following morning on January the 27th, the panic Jim and Nancy Beaumont experienced the night before had turned into one of dread and self-blaming on Nancy's part. When
2: Jim arrived home after a red-eyed night of fruitless searching, he found Nancy equally red-eyed from crying, huddled hopelessly in a chair, exclaiming it was all her fault and she should have never let them go. Nancy would be administered a sedative by a doctor shortly after this, and dozens of police continued searching for the children.
1: There were boats from sea rescue squadrons and officers on foot, trawling the beach and beachside suburbs, following any lead they could get. Detectives worked nights and days through attempting to piece together facts and knit together a timeline of the last known whereabouts and actions of Jane, Arna, and Grant. Pretty quickly, the police ruled out the possibilities of the children running away and drowning. Nothing logically pointed in those directions. Runaways are usually singular, occasionally pairs, and usually older than, say, Grant, for example, at age four, who would have been scared rolling into the night time had the girls decided to run off. This is a clip of Jim Beaumont speaking with a news reporter about his eldest daughter, Jane.
0: What sort of a girl... Uh, Is is Jane, the nine-year-old,
1: Has she...? uh... Oh, very intelligent, very intelligent. Um,
2: You've
3: only got to tell her a thing once and uh, uh, she always does what she's told, never to talk to any strangers on the beach, when she swims there, always in groups.
0: Be quite able to look after the other two. Oh, quite capable, quite capable.
2: And drowning, as we alluded to before, didn't fit. Once again, being three kids... One would have likely gone for help should a sibling have been in danger, and secondly, the beach was so crowded. Had the kids been swimming and something like that occurred, it would have been seen. So the only plausible scenario, unfortunately, was abduction.
1: Jim Beaumont fronted the media, a black-eyed, sleep-deprived, distraught parent, understandably. Police put out descriptions of the children into the media, hopeful that the public would come forward with information that might generate leads. Jane Beaumont, age nine, four foot six inches tall or 137 centimetres, slim, ear-length fair hair, tortoiseshell hairband with a yellow ribbon, hazel eyes and a freckled face. She was wearing green shorts over pink bathers, canvas tartan shoes, carrying an airways type shoulder bag, three towels and potentially a copy of the book Little Women. She also had a white purse with approximately 75 cents or maybe 85 cents in it. Anna Beaumont, age 7, 4 foot or 122 centimetres tall, plump build, dark brown hair with a fringe, sun-tanned complexion and dark brown eyes. Wearing tan shorts over red and white striped bathers and tan sandals. Grant Beaumont, age 4, 3 foot or 91 centimetres tall, thin build, brown hair, brown eyes, olive complexion, wearing green swim trunks with vertical white stripes under green cotton shorts and red sandals. He wasn't wearing a shirt at all.
2: Friends and family would gather at the Beaumont household in a united showing of support to Jim and Nancy while the police investigations into what happened to the kids leapt into overdrive. And the police investigation would be one heavily reliant on tips and alleged sightings of the children. If you think back, technology just wasn't what it is today. There was no physical evidence or traces of the kids, no forensic material, no crime scene, so tips and sightings were all the police had.
1: And a crowded beach on Australia Day, you can imagine, the information flooded in from across the country, not just South Australia, with alleged sightings of the children during the day and afterwards. So the police task of sifting through all of this was insurmountable, and really, it was probably the biggest factor affecting the investigation back then and to this day. Knowing how heavy to weigh one piece of information and discount another would have been an extremely difficult task for detectives, and the national media storm surrounding the disappearance of the Beaumont children heightened everything. It brought out the best in the Adelaide and broader communities in many ways, And it also confused matters, drawing less desirable and potentially unstable people out of the woodwork as well. There was an approximate timeline coming together. Police knew when the kids had left home and some details had been corroborated around that. Now they were piecing together sightings to see what the children's movements had been that morning. Bus driver ID Munro had confirmed the children boarding his bus at 10am at the corner of Harding Street and Diagonal Road that morning, but he couldn't recall seeing them again boarding another bus back along the same route throughout the day.
2: Local postman Tom Patterson had the last confirmed sighting of the children, claiming at first he'd seen them holding hands and laughing along Jetty Road around 1.45pm. Patterson would later change the time to just before 3pm after a sleepless night racking his brain. But his account would come under scrutiny as time went on, with people speculating Patterson might have got his days wrong, as the 3pm timeframe didn't fit with the other reported sightings of the children throughout the morning – Nor did their demeanour line up with how the kids would have been acting around that time had they been three hours late home. It's unlikely they would have been laughing and yelling out to him as they supposedly did, hey, that's our postie, seemingly without a care in the world, having been told to be home by midday.
1: The disappearance of the Beaumont children would also be potentially linked rather quickly to the Wanda Beach murders, which had occurred almost a year ago to the day at this time. We covered that case in detail in episode 13 of True Blue True Crime. There were similarities and differences in the cases, so police didn't rule out a connection. A 74-year-old woman came forward claiming to have seen the Beaumont children frolicking with a man at the Collie Reserve around 11am on the day of their disappearance. The man was described as tall, thin, blonde bleached hair, middle-aged and suntanned or surfy looking. She recalled the older of the kids carrying an airway-style bag and wearing pink bathers. This matched Nancy's description of Jane. While sitting on a nearby park bench, the lady recalled the three kids came up from the beach having been for a swim when they began interacting with this older male in a very friendly and familiar manner. The kids were playing under a sprinkler and the older man was lying on a towel nearby wearing navy blue brief bathers. The kids were jumping over him, flicking him playfully with a towel, and he was laughing with them. This went on for a good half an hour before this elderly woman left, and the kids were still playing with this man at the time. So there appeared to be a real sense of familiarity here, and it was once again at odds with the descriptions of the kids that they'd be interacting with a stranger.
2: Jim and Nancy Beaumont repeatedly said they found it hard to believe the kids would interact with someone they didn't know in this manner, particularly Jane who was a shy and reserved girl, very aware of her own body, and this blonde man apparently helped all three kids redress. So it was close contact and they seemed at ease with him. And like we saw in the Wanda case, this sighting of the blonde-haired suntan man would circulate and he'd become the main person of interest. He would obviously never come forward, whoever this man was, and across the entire country reports of suspicious blonde men would surface.
1: There'd be blonde men with kids travelling on planes to Sydney, blonde hitchhikers in Western Australia, random blonde men in Tasmania, and sightings of the Beaumont kids were just as frequent and far-reaching. And these were the reports flooding into police and being circulated in the media. In all honesty, researching this, it was a bit of a circus and hard to know what was a genuine verified sighting and what was conjecture, fluff patted out half-truths or completely irrelevant. A tip would lead police to drain the Padawalonga boat haven. They'd bring a bunch of fresh-faced police cadets to do this. There were numerous searches of stormwater drains in the surrounding streets, and police trawled through rubbish dumps looking for clues, but all of these searches would yield no results.
2: More witnesses with sightings of the kids at the beach would come forward. What reports would call an attractive 19-year-old woman reported seeing the blonde-haired man previously described near the kids around noon, but she'd thrown a woman into the mix, saying she'd also seen a man with a woman aged in her mid-30s. Another couple came forward, and these two would be referred to by police as two of the best witnesses. They basically confirmed the sightings and descriptions of the blonde man in the Navy briefs with the kids around the Collie Reserve area at noon. This couple were at the beach with their granddaughter at the time.
1: The blonde man approached this couple at one point, asking if they'd seen anyone near his and the children's clothing because they'd had some money taken. The couple hadn't, having only just arrived, and they told the man as such. This was the couple who observed the man dressing the three children, which, as we said, was odd considering their ages, particularly Jane, being nine and not only then capable of dressing herself, but reserved with strangers, so once again, we're seeing a closeness, a sense of familiarity with this man, leading to thoughts that this guy may have known the kids or met them previous times, slowly gaining their trust to the point where they were comfortable with him. Here's a more recent clip of private investigator and former detective Bill Hayes, with his thoughts on what might have transpired with the man and the alleged money that was taken.
3: I believe that they'd met him before. It's not the first time they'd met the man. It was quite a friendly. It was almost like a parent playing with the children. If your plan was to entice these children somewhere to get them away, so you could do whatever it was you wanted to do, what better way than to remove the method of getting home and be able to offer them an alternative?
1: And whether this was a line of inquiry at the time or not. It was constantly interrupted or overshadowed by other reports and media attention on the grieving parents, Nancy and Jim.
2: False reports of the kids being around Sydney, Melbourne, Broken Hill, Renmark, all bogus. Over a thousand alleged sightings for police to inquire on. Letters flooding in from clairvoyants and definers, proclaiming visions and locations. Detectives followed obvious angles, such as known perverts and sex offenders in the region. But in the end, there were more dead ends for the police than minutes in the day. And the weary detectives, although grateful for the public response, were left with very few angles to investigate until the next sensational tip came in.
1: Meanwhile, Jim and Nancy Beaumont continued to front the media, Grief stricken parents relaying heart melting tales and memories of the kids, reading letters aloud, showing photos of the cherubs in hopes of jogging someone's memory out there. Nancy Beaumont would also recall a passing, insignificant comment at the time from their youngest daughter, Anna, who said words to the effect of, Jane had got a boyfriend down at the beach. Nancy brushed it aside at the time, thinking it was just a young friend she'd made on their many trips over the summer. But now the comment took on a different meaning, particularly when factoring Jane's personality with the alleged sightings of her and her siblings, where she'd been seemingly quite comfortable in the presence of this tanned blonde man, to the point where she allowed him to redress her.
2: Infamous New South Wales detective Ray Machine Gun Kelly sashayed into South Australia a frenzied buzz around the arrival of the man who headed the investigation into the kidnapping of young Graham Thorne in Sydney in 1960. Kelly ruffled feathers in the initially cordial South Australian police force after media reports suggested he'd made more progress in a couple of days than the South Australia police had in weeks, allegedly tracking down a promising new lead from a female witness.
1: This lady had apparently observed the Beaumont children sometime after 2pm in the afternoon on the day of their disappearance at Summerton Park, not far from the Beaumont home. Apparently they were trailing a tall man... But this man had a different description, light brown haired with a swagger or muscle-bound gait and a sun-reddened complexion. This report of the man with the crazy walk contrasted those from earlier in the day, several of which had placed this bleached blonde suntan man with the children. But in the end, South Australian police investigated this lead of Kelly's and the sighting was unable to be corroborated and the lead turned into a dead end. Kelly's involvement in the case would come to an end shortly thereafter. As media reports continued to run rife and leads continued to fizzle, police resources began to stretch to capacity.
2: One such article published by reporter Jack Ayling for the Melbourne newspaper The Truth exclaimed, "'Vanished three Beaumont children are alive,' They hadn't been found. The grabbing headline, a polarising use or abuse of Jim and Nancy Beaumont's steadfast belief that their children were still alive and would be found. A truck driver by the name of Ray Gordon would come forward stating he'd seen three children matching the description of the Beaumonts, riding in the back of an old green Ford ute just a few days after their disappearance. Gordon's description of the driver seemed to match that of the man on the beach, with the minor change that his hair was more light brown than bleach blonde.
1: More people would come forward and confirm Gordon's utility sighting, and police eventually formed the opinion this indicated the abductor was taking a slow trip from Adelaide to Melbourne via Albury, which seemed like an indirect route. The Ute had South Australian plates, but other than these points... No further information was gleaned and this became just another sighting on the list of unconfirmed sightings post-disappearance. It's interesting to note that these sightings had all occurred within a few weeks of the children's disappearance, but none of the reports came forward until several months later. Another sighting like this came from a woman who'd witnessed two girls and a boy entering a neighbouring vacant house on the night of the children's disappearance. Once again, this was several months later that this report was given to police.
2: This woman allegedly saw the little boy later in the evening walking down alongside the house when he was scooped up tightly by the man accompanying the three children and taken back inside the house.
1: Another report came from a guy named Erwin Grosser who alleged he'd been held up at gunpoint by the fleeing assailant who had the Beaumont children in his car. He alleged the man forced him to fill up his car radiator and then took off towards Nuriotpa. This turned out to be a false claim and Grosser was drunk at the time when he made it.
2: There was a couple of phone calls that gave false hope. One a hoax captor inserting himself into the situation and another crossed phone line mentioning the children, which was investigated and turned out to be a dead end. It would also come out around this time. This is the 12-month anniversary stage of the children's disappearance that the children had been seen at Wenzel's Kate's shop on Mosley Street, Glenelg, around 11.30, 11.45am on the day of their disappearance.
1: The employee who served them was adamant it was the Beaumont children, recalling what they were wearing, as well as two interesting facts. One, the eldest girl had bought two pasties and a pie and a couple of bottles of soft drink. Within the Beaumont family, it was a known thing that Grant Jr. didn't eat pasties and he commented at the time, the employee recalled, where's my pie, to his sister Jane. Secondly, and very interestingly, the employee was sure the kids had paid for the food with a one pound note. Now if we recall, Nancy had only given Jane enough money for lunch and the bus, which equated to what was six shillings at the time, Uh, sometimes reported to be around 75 cents. My currency conversion isn't the best on that, but the point being it certainly wasn't a note, it was change, and it wasn't that much money, especially considering they'd already paid their bus fare to get to the beach. So this further lends credence to the theory that the children had been given the money by someone else, potentially the man at Collie Reserve.
2: Police knew this information quite early on in the investigation it would come out, but held the clue close to their vest. Which is a common practice as we know, but is also a bit of a puzzling thing to keep quiet, as it could have jogged fresher memories at the time had it been made public. So, this long list of sightings, by and large, occurred in the first 12 months of the children's disappearance. And as we can see, while these tips were from well meaning and concerned people, which gave police their only leads in the case, it also made things really confusing.
1: Approaching the 12 month mark of the Beaumont children's disappearance, there'd be a whole new level of public commotion and an accompanying media storm surrounding the international attention the case had received. Along with innumerable sightings the police had received, they'd also began to field many well-intended and peculiar visions and theories from a number of what's been described as paranormal detectives, mystics, clairvoyants and spiritualists – And these people not only hounded the police and media with these theories, but they harassed Jim and Nancy Beaumont directly as well.
2: And that would be an ongoing thing for Jim and Nancy, the relentless contact from people, sometimes misguided and sometimes well-intended. And the couple remained outwardly friendly, willing to hear anyone out, while occasionally respectfully disagreeing. This alone would have been difficult to deal with, but when you combine that with the numbing, unknowing and loss they were simultaneously dealing with, it's hard to fathom.
1: There were many of these psychic helpers who came out of the woodwork. A guy named Helmut Mueller uh, had a vision of the children buried at the bottom of some cliffs in the suburb of Merino. They weren't there. Another guy named Marinus Dykshorn, with his twisted metal divining rod, led police to a place in the Adelaide Hills where he claimed the children were buried, along with the description of the perpetrator. Neither vision proved fruitful. But perhaps the most famous parapsychologist to throw their name into the ring, proclaiming to have clear visions of what happened to the Beaumont children and that he'd find them within two days was a Dutch man by the name of Gerard Croiset.
2: The case had gone international by this time and Croisette had some reputation for allegedly finding 350 missing children in this time, a claim that was published as gospel at the time but has no real corroborating evidence on record that we can tell of nowadays. Croisette had apparently predicted his father's heart attack when he was 15 too, but a couple of Aussie newspapers, the advertiser and the news, had sources who got in touch with Croisette and basically started his potential involvement to crack the case.
1: So this reporting of Croizet's vision went on for a while, with him seeing things like bones and coral reefs and shells. Vague as these things might seem, they apparently were enough for locals to theorise the children were buried somewhere near a place called Minder Home, which is around three kilometres from the Beaumont residence, and it was a vast piece of land with a significant coastal frontage, Croizet's initial opinion was that children had been victims of a tragic accident, not foul play at all, and he maintained this theory for some time until his inevitable visit to Australia on November 7, 1966. Two local well-intended businessmen by the name of Barry Blackwell and Con Polites paid for Croizet's airfare over and Croizet refused payment for the work he was doing.
2: Jim and Nancy Beaumont, once again respectful of the man, weren't particularly enthused by the Dutch seer's arrival, but appreciated his efforts all the same. Crozet arrived on November the 7th to a media circus, greeting him enthusiastically at the Adelaide airport. Around 2,000 people crowded the airport terminal to see the dishevelled-looking mad professor that Croisette resembled. The following day, Compolites chauffeured Crozet to the Glenelg Beach foreshore. A small entourage followed the Dutch psychic from a distance and along with them a swag of about 50 people from the press.
1: Croisette bustled around enthusiastically, a camera dangling around his neck. He took around 42 photos of things he'd seen in his visions while in Holland. Croisette fossicked about for a couple of days through the Glenalg area, darting to new places as they came to him. Polite's flying through the side streets in his Rolls Royce, taxiing Croisette to the next location he'd seen in his vision. Visions of yellow vans and prams and in empty lots temporarily astounded some when they arrived and these items were in the locations that Croisette had proclaimed, however, nothing led to the Beaumont children. On the 11th of November, however, Croizet hosted a press conference where he stated that the Beaumont children were buried nine foot deep near the wall of a storeroom in a warehouse in Paringa Park, around 500 metres from the Beaumont home. Here's a clip firstly of Jim and Nancy talking about Croizet's visit, followed by Croizet himself at the aforementioned press conference.
3: Do you hope that uh, Dr Croizet succeeds, Jim? Oh, well, I mean, that's his... That's his uh, belief and uh, I, I really appreciate uh, him coming over, I mean, uh, to uh, to find the children.
2: I think it would be very difficult for him to, to meet us. I think he's
1: a very feeling man and I think that his main objective is finding the children more so than talking to us. There.
3: In my opinion, I have found the spot where the children are or would be. Where is that spot? Where is that spot? Uh, where I was this morning, near the wall of that storeroom where the children was last. were last. Where exactly? In here. Well, that's Wilton Street, Somerton Park. Yes. That is Wilton Street, Summerton Park. Yes. I go.
2: This revelation of Corsette's came off the back of the tip the night before from Polite's secretary who had a friend who heard the kids were buried there so it was hardly visionary genius on his part, this new theory about the warehouse. The following day, police escorted Corsette to the building where he was visibly shocked upon arrival and spent several hours inside the building inspecting it. Corsette concluded that the children were buried under a freshly poured concrete it turned out the building had undergone extensive renovations since the Beaumont children's disappearance. Specifically, Cosette alleged their remains would be found inside an old brick kiln beneath the surface.
1: Crozette asserted that the children had been looking for shelter in a place they knew, in an area that they knew, and this was not only close to their home but to Jane and Anna's primary school as well. And they'd tragically fallen through some hole or temporary wooden floor and became trapped down there and they'd expired or died during the fall, perhaps. So Crozet's claims obviously resonated with the public who were wanting the case solved. Jim and Nancy Beaumont and the police were a little more sceptical, as were the property owners of the warehouse. They didn't want the newly renovated building excavated, understandably. But mounting pressure from the public and the raising of a $40,000 fund to perform the earthworks really pushed the building owners to relent and allow the excavation. Workers excavated a 12 by 8 foot area and the dig uncovered a conveyor belt used in the brick kiln, a suitcase and a large hopper bin, but no sign of the three Beaumont children.
2: Crozet met with Jim and Nancy Beaumont before leaving Adelaide and, as always, they were warm and friendly and thanked him for his efforts, and Crozet, too, was ever the gentleman. Despite the lack of success, Crozet maintained that his vision never changed, and he departed for the US to undertake more searches of other missing people. Incidentally, jumping forward in time a moment, this warehouse would be partially demolished and researched comprehensively in 1996, some 30 years later but again, no trace evidence was found linking the site to any of the three missing Beaumont children.
1: In February 1968, Jim and Nancy Beaumont would let a trio of newspaper journalists into their home for what would be their final interviews with the media for almost 25 years after this. This was a chance for them to let it all out and to have the tale told completely almost two years on, and in hopes that the stories following it would keep the case of their missing children in the minds of the general public. The grieving parents recounted details of their beautiful three kids, Jane, Anna and Grant, in a very candid and emotive interview with the journalists. Jim handed around a letter from their daughter Jane. Jane would regularly write her parents' letters if one or both of them had been away, updating them on things around the house and goings-on from the day.
2: One letter read, Dear Mum and Dad, I am just about to go to bed and the time is nine. I have put Grant's nappy on so there is no need to worry about him wetting on the sheet. Grant wanted to sleep in his own bed, so one of you will have to sleep with Anna. Although you will not find the rooms in very good condition, I hope you find them as comfortable as we do. Good night to you both, Jane. P.S. I hope you had a very nice time wherever you went. P.P.S. I hope you don't mind me taking your radio into my room, Daddy.
1: About one week after these interviews with Jim and Nancy were published, the parents would receive communication that would turn their worlds upside down, a letter from their daughter Jane. The letter read, Dear Mum and Dad, we are safe so there is no need to worry about us. Oh, we've really missed you in the past two years. At the beach on that day, we were walking to the bus stop when a man in a car stopped us and asked if we wanted a ride. I said that we did and that's how this all started. The man would not let us write before. He is letting us right now because he saw the article in the Herald tonight and felt very sorry for you both. He watched us a lot for about six weeks, then he didn't watch us so much. Anna and I often talk about you, but Grant does not remember you at all after more than two years. We've been well fed all the time. I, as well as Anna and Grant, hope that you are both well, The man said to me just now that he is willing to let us go if you will come over to Victoria to get us as long as you don't call the police. He said that if you do, the deal is off. You have to pick us up from the Dandenong Post Office at 10 minutes to 9 o'clock next Monday the 26th of February. You, Dad, have to wear a dark coat and white pants so that the man will know you. The man told me to tell you that the police must not know at all. He said that if you do tell them... You may as well not come, so please don't tell them. The Dandenong Post Office is in Victoria, in case you don't know. We're all looking forward to seeing you next Monday. Please do not tell the police. The man did not mean to harm us. We still love you both. Love Jane, Anna and Grant.
2: Jim Beaumont immediately contacted Stan Swain, head of the Homicide Squad, and he rushed over. Jim thought it looked like Jane's handwriting, however the letter had spelt Anna's name incorrectly, with a single N instead of two. A-R-N-N-A was the correct way. So this was a concern surrounding the authenticity because presumably a bright girl like Jane would know how to spell her only sister's name. Nevertheless, on February the 25th at the early hour of 5am, Jim and Nancy Beaumont, along with Stan Swain in his own van, made the drive from Glenelg, South Australia, to Dandenong, Victoria, a southeastern suburb around 45 minutes from Melbourne CBD.
1: Jim Beaumont attended the post office as requested, and throughout the afternoon grew increasingly agitated as calls came into the post office staff, who subsequently relayed messages to Jim that the man was running late for various reasons, one including that young Grant was ill. By 3 pm, a dejected Jim Beaumont returned to Swain, who'd been hovering covertly in his van nearby all day. Having come to the conclusion that this mystery man wasn't going to bring his children. As Jim, Nancy, and Swain entered the Dandenong Hotel, they were greeted by some members of the press. Turned out the secret trip wasn't secret after all. Someone had gotten the tip that they'd made this voyage to Dandenong. On the 29th, the Beaumonts returned home to find another letter from this supposed man, which was in two parts one from Jane which detailed mundane information of what they'd been doing, noting simply that the man had seen the policeman they brought and was disappointed.
2: The second part was from the man himself and was a little more colourful in its language, but basically said the same thing. He knew they had police there, he was looking after the kids well and he returned them one day. A week later, a third and final letter from Jane and the man arrived, summarising what had already been conveyed to the two distraught parents. They shouldn't have brought detectives, and one day the man will send us all home on the train. These were the last letters from Jane and the mysterious man, and nothing would ever come from these for nearly 25 years. In that time, the shattered lives of Jim and Nancy Beaumont went on, Jim trudging along with his work, fielding the insensitive comments about his kids wherever he went, you're the guy with the missing children. Some people even alleged that Beaumont parents had something to do with the children's disappearance themselves which was just another vicious, soul-destroying thing the parents had to endure and fend off.
1: Nancy Beaumont was a shadow of her former self. She dropped 14 kilograms in weight and survived on not much more than cups of tea, cigarettes and prescription medication. Fast-forwarding again, just so we can tie a knot in this letter-writing incident, in 1992, about 24 years later, Forensic examinations using advanced technology, unavailable in the 1960s, would yield fingerprints from these letters and inevitably lead police to a now 41 year old man who was a teenager at the time, but he'd written the letters as a joke. The suspected hoax had been proven. The man was apparently extremely remorseful of the actions of his juvenile self, and due to his age at the time and the passage of time that had passed, He wasn't charged with any offences pertaining to this, but it was just another crushing blow in the increasingly futile search for the missing Beaumont children.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: Moving into the 1970s, and the tale of the three missing children from Glenelg Beach would be overshadowed by new headlines hitting the tabloids. The Vietnam War was raging at this time. Prime Minister Harold Holt would go missing from a Victorian beach after going for a swim, and a couple of days later he was presumed dead. His body has never been discovered to this day. And the Beaumont case, which had once been in everyone's faces around the country, and seemingly every single police resource available was committed to it, now just had the one detective assigned. As time went on, the Beaumont case would be summarised by many people in both official circles and the broader public as a one-off or freak occurrence, unlikely to ever happen again. But this was really just the beginning of what would be a dark chapter in South Australian history.
2: Two other cases often linked to the disappearance of the Beaumont children would occur in the 1970s, and these were linked mostly through the suspects who'd come to light over the years and, to a lesser degree, the MOs of the crimes, which, due to the unknown fate of the Beaumont children, is somewhat speculative. On August 25th, 1973, 11-year-old Joanne Ratcliffe and 4-year-old Kirsty Gordon were abducted from the Adelaide Oval during a football match. The older Joanne had taken younger Kirsty to a toilet break during the game and the girls never returned.
1: Sightings thereafter reported seeing the girls with a man, allegedly with the younger girl under his arm as the older girl tried to fight him and release her friend. Sketches of the man seen afterwards allegedly resembled that of the man in the Beaumont case and police potentially linked the cases on this basis. This would also lead to the interchanging of suspects between the Beaumont case and that of Ratcliffe and Gordon over the years, with a few exceptions. There's obvious similarities and obvious differences in these cases. Next week we'll delve a bit deeper into that when we discuss the abduction of Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon in detail on its own episode. It's often mentioned in passing with the Beaumont case, and there's nowhere near as much information out there about it but these girls presumably had their lives taken and their families' lives were equally as affected.
2: Another crime, or more accurately, a series of murders, often linked to the Beaumont case through the main perpetrator, is a case known widely as the Family Murders. Five young men would be found murdered in the late 70s through the early 80s in and around Adelaide, South Australia, all apparently kidnapped, sexually abused and at times tortured for extended periods. Four of the five murders remain unsolved, except for the 1983 murder of Richard Calvin, the son of a local television and radio personality named Rob Calvin.
1: A guy named Bevan Spencer von Einem would be convicted of Calvin's murder in 1984, and subsequently von Einem would become a suspect in the disappearance of the Beaumont children and the Adelaide Oval Abduction. This leads us neatly to the suspect pool in the Beaumont case that has grown over the years, with the introduction of one of the contemporary prime suspects being Von Einem. But before we get to him in detail as to how he relates to the Beaumont case, this won't be the last time we discuss Von Einem and the alleged family this season.
2: During Von Einem's trial for the murder of Richard Calvin, it was alleged that he had something to do with the murder of not only the Beaumont children, but Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon as well. An informant, known only as Mr B, retold an apparent conversation or conversations he had had with Von Einem. Mr B had supposedly taken part in the kidnapping, drugging and raping of several young men in the area, but not the murders Von Einem and the other members of the family had committed.
1: Mr B said Von Einem said he'd taken three kids from the beach several years ago and taken them home to conduct experiments before performing brilliant surgery on each of them and connecting them up. One of the kids had died during the procedure, according to Mr B's recollection of what Von Einem had said, so he killed the remaining two and dumped their bodies in bushland south of Adelaide. Police hadn't looked into Von Einem before, he wasn't on the suspect list initially until Mr B came forward. Mr B's testimony was crucial in convicting Von Einem in the murder of Richard Calvin, and he was, generally speaking, regarded as a solid witness, despite having a sordid past of his own. So police wanted to believe him, but it was a polarising theory.
2: Von Einem somewhat matched the suspect's sketch, but as we'll see, we'll post this sketch for you all to see. The sketch isn't very good, to be honest, and there was issues with the details of how it was created. We'll touch on that later on. Some things Mr B alleged didn't line up with the facts of the crime, but others did. It was known that Von Einem spent some time at Glenelg Beach Perving, but his proclivity many would assert was for young men, not kids. It's debatable, but it's commonly asserted as a point against Von Einem's involvement.
1: Von Einem, similar to the case with Percy last week, was quite a bit younger than the alleged age of the suntanned surfy blonde man. Von Einem was twenty or twenty-one at the time. And he was dark-haired, I think, but allegedly he went grey very young, around 18, I've heard. So his hair, combined with his young age, may have given him a unique appearance, whereby he looked 30s and maybe bleach blonde, but was really young and unusually grey. The man was also described as athletic. Von Einem was a soft-looking accountant upon his capture in the late 70s, so perhaps he was 10 years earlier in better shape, Von Einem also allegedly told Mr B he'd taken two girls from a football game in the past, although he didn't elaborate on that.
2: around Von Einem as a suspect would ramp right up in 2007 when archived footage of the search for the Beaumonts from Channel 7 News showed a young man in the crowd of spectators who supposedly was a dead ringer from Von Einem. We'll post this picture too but essentially they've got this guy in the footage's face and Von Einem's and it's sent off to some sort of advanced facial mapping with an expert in the field. This guy concluded it wasn't Von Einem in the photos. There were distinctive differences that couldn't be mistaken, things like his ear position and size of his jawline and I think you can see that but we'll post the pictures for you guys to see anyway.
1: But Bevan Spencer Von Einem remains a suspect, a prime suspect, to this very day. He's currently serving a life sentence, but there's no doubting the sick mind of this guy and his capabilities to commit such an act. Another popular suspect is a guy named Arthur Stanley Brown. In 1998, Brown was named a suspect in the Beaumont and Adelaide Oval cases as he bore a striking similarity to the police sketches, as bad as the sketch is, different as they are, I don't think the two sketches even look particularly alike, but for the thin face aspect, Brown did have that going on, a very thin and sunken looking face, gaunt looking dude with sunken eyes. Brown was 86 when his name came to light, and was off the back of another crime. At this time he was charged and tried for the murders of two girls, sisters, named Judith and Susan McKay, who were found strangled in a dry creek bed in late 1970. Brown was deemed unfit to be tried for these crimes, however, as he was found to have dementia and Alzheimer's disease. He eventually died in 2002, technically a free man.
2: We're going to talk about Brown in more detail next week because he's a sickening and interesting character who we think ties closer to the Adelaide Oval case than the Beaumonts. Although he had a thin face element going on, Brown was 53 at the time of the Beaumonts' disappearance. That's old enough to put a strike against him, I think, especially when you factor in the counter-arguments for the likes of Percy and Von Einem being too young at around the 20-year-old mark, and there's a similar age gap there with Brown being that much older. Nevertheless, Brown, along with Von Einem, remain at the very top of the suspect list in The Disappearance of the
1: Beaumont Children. Another suspect is a man named James Ryan O'Neill, originally named Lee Bridgart. O'Neill was a real estate agent turned gun dealer turned opal worker and he was a recidivist pedophile apparently an unsuspecting and likeable bloke otherwise he was jailed in 1975 for the murder of a nine-year-old boy named Ricky John Smith near Tirana in Tasmania and he'd also murdered another young man too named uh, Bruce Wilson but he wasn't convicted for that. O'Neill had allegedly bragged to several people throughout the early 1970s while living back on the mainland in the Kimberley region, Melbourne and Cooper Pedy, that he was responsible for the disappearance of the Beaumont children.
2: A Victorian detective, Gordon Davies, spent years talking with O'Neill while he was serving his life sentence, building rapport with the murderer in hopes of getting a confession or some tangible link to other crimes. O'Neill never admitted to any involvement in other crimes, although he never denied it either, which is what Davey thought was suspect. O'Neill would use evasive answers such as, on legal advice, I'm not going to confirm whether I was or was not there, when queried on the Beaumont case.
1: O'Neill claimed to never have been to Adelaide, although it was established that he worked in the opal industry at the time, as we said, and the roads from Melbourne where he lived to Coober Pedy where he worked meant he had to pass through Adelaide to get there. South Australia police have interviewed and discounted O'Neill as a suspect in the Beaumont case, officially. Detective Davey concedes he's possibly not the abductor and killer, but based on the accounts he'd heard O'Neill retell co-workers and acquaintances, and his evasive responses, he thinks O'Neill is still a valid suspect. There's a documentary on O'Neill's alleged involvement outlining links between him and the Beaumont case, entitled The Fisherman which aired on ABC in late 2006. O'Neill attempted to have the airing blocked via injunction to the High Court, but lost.
2: Another popular suspect is a man named Derek Ernest Percy. We spoke about this guy's potential involvement in the Beaumont case in last week's episode, so check that out for a deep dive on Derek Percy. We won't rehash all of that in this episode, but suffice to say, Percy was placed in the area at the time had the criminal pedigree and the ability to carry out such a sickening abduction and bore somewhat of a resemblance, as many did, to the police sketch. He too was younger at the time than the suspect was alleged to be, around 17, and he didn't drive. It is often hypothesised the Beaumont abductor had a car. However, he remains a person of interest to the police in the disappearance of the Beaumont children to this day.
1: While Percy placed himself in Adelaide at the time, a story confirmed by other family friends who say the Percys were there on holidays, he frequently said he couldn't remember anything else when it came to the pointy end of discussing crimes. And as we know, Percy's dead now and he gave no deathbed confessions. Another person thrown into the suspect pool is a guy by the name of Alan Anthony Munro. And when his name came up, He was being sought in Southeast Asia for alleged child abuse incidents that he committed, but he was connected to the Beaumont case at this time by another man named Alan McIntyre. McIntyre himself had been investigated and cleared as a suspect in the Beaumont case, but the gist of what he brought to the table about Munro came from two of his children named Andrew and Ruth. They claimed that Munro arrived at the McIntyre house on the night of the Beaumont children's disappearance – with the bodies of three children in the trunk of his car. They also alleged that there are up to 10 people there that night who held information about the abduction and murder of the Beaumont children.
2: Police investigated Munro and ruled him out as a suspect, despite diary entries from McIntyre's son and others placing Munro in the Glenelg Beach area on the day of the children's disappearance and his sordid history of child sex offences. Today, police have investigated Munro and found no evidence to link him to the Beaumont case, but he remains a person of interest on the suspect list. Munro was living in Cambodia, running what was described as a gay-friendly lady-boy bar, but I believe he was extradited, convicted and is now in prison for historic sex offences.
1: And last but not least, we have a suspect named Harry Phipps to discuss. At the time of the Beaumont's disappearance, Phipps was a 48-year-old wealthy local business owner, a business named Cast Alloy, which he owned and operated. He was said to be a fairly upper-class person at the time, but he passed away in 2003. Phipps became a person of interest when the book entitled The Saturn Man, Uncovering the Mystery of the Beaumont Children was published in 2013. This book was written by Alan Whittaker, who we've mentioned a few times in the past couple of episodes and co-written and researched by Stuart Mullins. Whitaker wrote the original book on the Beaumont case back in the mid-2000s, I believe, and this Saturn Man book was a revised version interspersed with information about this new suspect named Harry Phipps. Phipps wasn't named in the book. They used a pseudonym for him and his son, but it was his son's ex-wife who came forward initially and identified Phipps as a potential suspect.
3: What told you, have? between 12 and 12.30. You said you saw the kids. Yeah, I think i coming in. Can you describe them to me now? little kids. One's a little bit shorter than the rest. Like, short haircuts. I think they had towels. I think I had bleach towels. Did you see them talking to Harry? Yeah. Did you hear what they're saying? Well, it's a thought, How long had you seen them for? How long were you standing talking to Harry? long enough until we took them inside, or we took them inside, and then after that I came out of the cubby house and went inside to see what was uh, going on, and the front door was open, so I just assumed I left out the front door. Did you hear any noises, or any screaming, or any shouting, or nothing, any gunshots? Yeah, we here. We had some gunshots go off, but shit, Harry's always loading up gunshots. That wasn't often. I was there the kids in the house were gunshots going Now not one no, no plus. How many shots did you hear?
2: Four. Hayden went on to say that he saw his father maybe an hour or two later loading four large bags into his Pontiac before leaving. He didn't see the three kids leave the house.
1: Hayden believed the kids were buried in a place called the Sandpit, an area near his father's former commercial property where he operated his business. Phipps apparently bore a striking resemblance to the police sketch of the suspect, which as we've said, is a debatable point with every suspect. And we say that because it would later come out alongside the fact the newspaper sketch artist wasn't really experienced in this kind of work. But he was also drunk when he sketched this, and the lady who witnessed and described the suspect was said to be in a bit of a tiz. There was a lot of activity around when they were trying to capture this, so it wasn't just a quiet room for them to work on the sketch. So to me, it's not a particularly valuable sketch or heavily weighted factor when you say suspect X matched the sketch, but there were some other compelling bits of circumstantial evidence about Phipps. He lived only 300 metres away from Glenelg Beach, was alleged after his passing to have pedophilic tendencies, had a silk fetish, hence the satin Man moniker, the Collie Reserve and Wenzel's Cake Shop were just a stroll away, and apparently Hayden said his father was in the habit of handing out one-pound notes at the time. He'd often chuff off with his mates, giving them a one-pound note, which was a bit of cash at the time, thereby having the house to himself to enjoy his satin fetishes, allegedly.
2: Hayden lived a tormented adult life, suffering mental health and substance abuse issues, and he has sadly passed away since telling his story to investigators. In 2017, a woman came forward and alleged that Phipps sexually assaulted her when she was a teenager. In addition to these claims, two other men, who were young lads at the time, also came forward stating that Phipps paid them to dig a two-by-two-metre hole at his factory that same weekend, with no reasoning behind it. So these guys gave what was said to be a reliable account of this event, apparently stunned they had potentially dug the grave of the Beaumont children.
1: This led to an excavation of Phipps' old factory site in North Plimpton in November 2013. Ground-penetrating radar detected one anomaly beneath the surface, indicating potential disturbances of the soil. A one-metre-squared section was dug up, but no evidence was discovered and the site was effectively wrapped up. But many thought they hadn't done enough at the North Plimpton site, and there was mounting public pressure with the rising popularity of the Saturn Man book and Phipps as a suspect. So on February 2nd, 2018, police returned to conduct a more comprehensive dig of the site, and this was off the back of a Channel 7 Adelaide investigation into the case, which got a lot of traction being a mainstream media outlet, and that's where we've played a few clips from today. But nothing was discovered relating to the missing Beaumont children, just some old animal remains and garbage. The Channel 7 documentary on this... Uh, He's very compelling with the evidence they put forward against Phipps. The private investigators, the researchers, the forensic and psychological experts, it's gripping and worth a watch. It's certainly slanted against Phipps, but there's many plausible angles and reasoning given throughout. The main points being that he wasn't someone at the time who'd be suspected. He was a wealthy person with friends in high places. He had paraphilic sexual desires, matched the description and the age range, and he lived locally, something that is heavily weighed now statistically, but at the time not so much.
2: I think it's worth pointing out that Phipps had other family members who came forward after Hayden's claims and rebuked his son's characterisation of his father, saying that Phipps was in no way like his son had portrayed him. So in fairness, that should be pointed out. And over the years, reports continued to have come in sporadically about the Beaumont children having been abducted by various cults in Australia and abroad. At one time, there was even allegations that Jane Beaumont had been found. It turned out to be a mentally ill woman.
1: There is still to this day a $1 million reward for any information that leads to the capture of the perpetrator or the discovery of the remains of the Beaumont children. It's very much an open case for South Australian police, and to this day, there's still articles written about the case, often around the time of the anniversary of the children's disappearance. The case is widely credited with being the catalyst for a change in the fabric of Australian society, a loss of innocence, if you will.
2: Jim and Nancy Beaumont eventually separated in the 1980s. The toll of their children's disappearance and relentless media coverage, lack of closure and the grief they endured eventually becoming too much for their marriage to survive. They remain in touch with police, although they've both endeavoured to live out their later years out of the public eye knowing they will probably never get the closure of knowing what happened to their three beautiful children.
1: Nancy Beaumont still wears a locket with a faded picture of Jane, Anna and Grant inside. She'd be about 91 years of age now. Her children are still close to her heart. And Jim Beaumont, who'd be around 93, would undoubtedly still hear the laughs of his darling kids as he left them at the beach that day, picture their smiles and remembering Jane's beautiful letters, One of which we'll finish with now. Dear loving Daddy, when Auntie Taylor came down to stay with us yesterday, we went to the Goodwood Pool last night. Anna and Grant swam in the Toddler's Pool, which was up to my waist on me, but Auntie, Mummy, and I swam in the 3 foot 6 inch pool. While we were there, I learned how to open my eyes under the water for ever so long, and I learned how to kick my legs and make my arms float and dive, gracefully dive, racers dive, and plane dive. I learnt this all from Auntie Taley. There is only one thing I can't do, breathing out, as I am swimming along. Tonight I had a hot pie, fritz, and sauce sandwich, and rainbow ice cream. Auntie Tailie brought a great big roast chicken from her father for nothing. Most of all, I want to wish you much luck with your hot, tiring work. Well, goodbye. I have to go now. I love you. Loving Jane. I wasn't prepared for how much this case would affect me prior to researching it. I'd heard of this case, like pretty much everyone in Australia. I'd seen the photo of the three kids while on holidays down at the uh, Great Ocean Road there in front of the Twelve Apostles. But once again, and I feel like a bit of a broken record saying this, this case due to the the passage of time was almost like folklore to me. But researching it, seeing and hearing what Jim and Nancy went through, that feeling of the numbing unknown, it brought me to tears when I finished the book Uh, I read for this. The book ended with Nancy getting that locket of hers repaired by a friend. And the friend commented that it didn't look like it was worth repairing, but they got it fixed for her anyway. And when they gave it back to her, there was a glisten in her eyes and she opened it and it had the old faded picture of the kids in there. She had her little one's back close to her and, uh, you know, she's 91 or something now. It just broke my heart, that part. And it's an enduring and sad case. I feel so sorry for Jim and Nancy Beaumont and may those three little souls rest in peace
2: experience through the years is almost visceral. Reading the letter from Jane at the end, you can feel the pain, the pain they would have endured and the countless years of not knowing. I feel so much for them and I know that I can't even begin to comprehend what they went through. The stories of the letters they received and the invitation to come to Victoria to pick up the children in the early years, I kept playing that over in my head the hope you would have, but how that hope would also cause you pain. I don't know how they went on after that. It's so horrible. They not only went on after that too, but they showed poise and grace during it. Three children taken and never found. I'm just not sure there is a more painful or heart-wrenching scenario. And this case has never gone away, like you said. The community involved are still passionate about finding the truth of what happened to these children, there are websites dedicated to them. There is even a live change.org petition to get a sinkhole excavated where the children are speculated to be buried to help give the family some long-awaited closure. This year is the 53rd year since their disappearance and the case still remains open. I hope that there is eventually closure for the family and like you said, Sean, I hope that the children may rest in peace.
1: And moving on to some happier thoughts now, Chloe.
2: Yes. So my happy thought is that I went on a really good hike. It was a public holiday in Victoria here this week, just gone. And I took Monday off and went to the Cathedral Ranges, which is way out um, towards Marysville um, through the Black Spur kind of way. My parents... um, are obsessed with how dangerous the Black Spur is. So I had to really get past that to <laughs> get their <laughs> approval to get out there. I think it's a thing from their generation maybe. Yeah. Um, so I, I did that though and it was so good. It was so much fun. Um, and it was so not, it was a hard walk, but it's one of the best views I've ever seen on a hike. So I'm still just thinking about how good that was to be on top of a mountain and that I did it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, the the Blackspur thing is a thing. Yes, like, is, isn't do it? Because often if, you, if you're heading out that way, they go, are oh, you heading out through A through Seymour? And you go, no, nah, up to the Blackspur. Ooh, Blackspur, Spur, jeez. My mum well,
2: listens to this. She's going to be rolling her eyes. But she definitely, every time, and my friend who I went with said, my mum said the same, that she knew someone and they just, it's terror is inbuilt yeah, in them. <laughs> it is, yeah.
1: My happy thoughts, much more basic and less scenic than that, Chloe, <laughs> it's beef jerky. It's my happy thought. I've I've gotten really into beef jerky in the last couple of weeks as a bit of a snack. (laughs) Meant to be really high in protein. I just like the fact that it's (laughs) dried meat but spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no good. (laughs) Oh, gross. It's really good.
2: I mean, I don't eat meat, so um, you're (laughs) really talking to the wrong person about this. I I suppose I I didn't
1: really sell it with dried meat that's spicy either.
2: (laughs) No, not at all. But I'm glad that you're bringing some food chat to the Food Weather podcast movie review That's what I thought. I thought I should chime in
1: with that, with, you know, the coffee and now the jerky. I don't have those two two things together, but yeah. I hope not.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well... Um, Moving on, if you have any case suggestions, feedback, or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. We've had some case suggestions this week, so thanks for everyone who has got in touch.
1: If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs blooper reels and much more to come
2: and if you are enjoying the show please give us a five-star rating and review on itunes it really helps us and helps other people find out about the show
1: thanks for listening everyone we'll be back next week to discuss the lesser known and often linked case of joanne ratcliffe and Kirsty gordon some crossover suspects and some new ones and the big question are the two cases linked We'll give you our thoughts on that and more next time on True Blue True Crime.
2: Bye.